When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, welcome in. It's episode 36 of the Unidentified Alien Podcast, UAP, right here. Stephen Diener over there, Karen Curtis, and it's going to be a very thought-provoking episode here today. another one. Oh, oh yeah. The very, very thought-provoking. So it's, I think we're going to answer a lot of questions here today. So Karen, how are you? I'm well, thank you so much. That's, that's good. I mean, we haven't done this for a little while. Uh, Yes. The podcast, I mean. Um, last time we spoke about the Spear of Destiny. Right. And I wanted to correct myself about the world calendar or the Christian calendar because I said that Constantine was the one that established the AC, BCAD. Wait, so does, does this count as a factoid? No, there's two okay. factoids oh, there's here. there's two, okay. I'm, this is a correction. Oh, first a correction. We've, we've never started off with a correction yeah, before. Well, okay, well you had brought up Charlemagne and Dionysus and yes. they were the ones that established BCAD and gave out the new watches. Oh, how about that? All right, so, so Con- Charlemagne invented the Rolex. There you go. Yeah, and Emperor Constantine, though, he did issue an edict making three major changes to the Julian calendar in, 3, 000, in 301. 301. Not 302. No. He introduced the seven-day week with Sunday as the first day of the week. Huh. And he established the Christian holidays with fixed dates and the grafting of Easter onto the calendar with a flexible date. It's Easter. I, I thought this would be timely. Hmm. Easter nice. is determined by the moon. Oh, okay. So that's why it's always the different, different date and everything. Yeah. Oh, look at that. Well, see, that was a fun little factoid mixed in with a little correction there. So welcome back here to UAP. Like Karen said, it's been a couple of weeks, actually, which is unusual for us. The last time we took a week off was during Christmas break. Um, but we took a week off for spring break, so that's why we weren't here last week. A little vacation time. I was on the road with the family, so please and forgive wife. me. And the wife. Please forgive me. It was my fault that we were not here last week, but we're happy no, to be back did, now. What did you tell me? You've let me down. I did. I, I, I actually told Karen to her face, I've, I've let you down terribly. Because... <laughs> Because we weren't going to do an episode, and we were on a streak there of not yeah. missing a week. So right. we're happy to be back now for episode 36, which is all about deathbed confessions of people who have basically in the know worked on all these secret bases and decided at the end of their life to tell everything supposedly, allegedly, that they knew. 
about so, aliens or UAPs. Correct. A deathbed confession is an admittance or confession when someone is nearing death or on their deathbed. Right. And it helps alleviate any guilt, regrets, secrets, or yeah. sins the dying may have before they die. And there's quite a few when it comes to uh, aliens and UFOs and secret bases. And yeah. we're going to go into a, a handful of those today. This is really, really interesting stuff. If, let me put it this way. If you don't believe, like at all, if you're coming into this podcast and say, you know what, I've never heard this podcast, let me hear what this is all about and see if they can change my mind because I don't believe any of this garbage about aliens. It's, right. all, it's all hogwash. And you're coming in thinking that to yourself. I'm going to tell you right now, in the next 30 minutes, we're going to change your mind. Exactly. I think so. So, And we have uh, audio to prove it, too. That's I right. just wanted to give a little factoid that proves that aliens came down and helped people on Earth in different locations with the same info. So this is the official factoid. This is the factoid. Okay, let's go. It's about the origins of zero, and you and I have talked about it before. Mm. But um, it mostly the origin of zero, because think about it. Who came? That's a, like a wild concept. Yeah, it's pretty Zero. Wild. I mean, you could think of one, you know. Was it in, the Phoenicians? In, yes. Uh, right? So it was in the Fertile Crescent of the of ancient Mesopotamia. Yes. The Sumerian scribes used spaces to denote absences in number columns as early as 4,000 years ago. But the first recorded use of a zero-like symbol dates to sometime around the 3rd century BC hmm. in ancient Babylon. The Babylonians employed a number system based around values of 60, which is kind of weird. And they developed a specific sign. It was two small wedges, which, you know, later turned into the zero Hmm. to differentiate between magnitudes in the same way that modern decimal based systems use zeros to distinguish between tenths, hundredths and thousandths. And then a similar type of symbol cropped up independently in the Americas sometime around 350 A.D. with the Mayans. Wow. They began using a zero marker in their calendars. And further indications, you know, that aliens helped us out in different spots of the Earth. See, and it's an interesting point because... We always talk about when we talk, you know, we go through different stories, and you have one story from 1952 and another story from you know 612, and they're they're similar details. So, and then you have a story maybe within the same time period, but one story is in Egypt, another story is in Mexico. Like the light bulb, didn't someone else invent it as well as Edison in another part of the country? Or I mean, there's inventions happen simultaneously in different places in the on the earth. So, it, you know, it, we always talk about that. Is it coincidence? Is it just, you know, is it part of the Akashic record we've talked about before? where these, Two people dipping into the same thought. Yeah, these ideas are floating around in, you know, the in space somewhere and or is it was the information like you said, Karen, given to do two different civilizations or cultures at different times? And that's what I've always found interesting when we go over different stories. And you'll hear some of that today, too, with these deathbed confessions where you have similarities in different stories from different people in different time frames. And it makes you wonder, well, hmm, that's kind of corroborating evidence if we're talking about a trial. So, yeah, that's very interesting. See, thought provoking. My family tree is full of zeros. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Sorry. So we'll start off here with our first deathbed confession, and that comes from a man named Walter Hout. So, Karen? Yeah. First Lieutenant Walter Hout was the public information officer, or PIO for short, mm-hmm. and that was he was at the 509th Bomb Group based in... Uh-oh. Roswell. Yeah. 
He was born in 22 and lived till 2005. Yeah, it's a nice long life there for Mr. Hout. Now, he was there in 1947. In the prime of, of his life. Yes, when, of course, the famous incident took place. Of course, July 8th, 1947, we all know. He was ordered by the base commander, who was Colonel William Blanchard. Now, I'm giving all these names on purpose because they're very important to the story because he named names. Well, this was back in the time when this flying disc landed down a nearby ranch, right? Right. Crash landed, right. Now, he was hired by Colonel William Blanchard to draft the press release to the public. Okay. Announcing that the United States Army and Air Forces had recovered the crashed flying disc. From the nearby ranch. Oh, now, remember, we can't have that. That was remember that was the original release, and they used the term "flying disc." Of course, we know what happened after that. They said it was a weather balloon, but the press release garnered widespread national and international media attention, of course. But then they retracted the claim, as we know, later that same day, saying <laughs> that it was the weather balloon. Now, how it also received some criticism and ridicule. During in the press for putting out the original press release, of course. Oh, why wow, you crazy people in the army and the air force? What do you mean you have a flying disc? Now, of course, a series of events eventually became known as the Roswell UFO incident, probably the most famous UFO incident in the history of UFO accounts. When interviewed about the incident, Karen, yes, decades later, how claimed only a minor role, uh-huh. but he expressed belief that there was no chance. Quote. That senior officers who had handled the recovery material, including base commander Blanchard, that they would have mistook that for a weather balloon when it was actually a flying saucer. I'm looking for the original press release because I just wanted to see. I mean, as a news director, I wanted to see how it was written. Right. And I mean, this is, I guess, the uh, the newspaper accounts of it. So you don't actually see the original press release. But the headline in the Roswell Daily Record read, R-A-A-F captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. That was the headline. That was the headline. That's right. And they had to retract it because they figured, well, we don't want to cause widespread panic. And they've been lying about it ever since. And then they're like, oh, aren't we just a bunch of sheep that we believe that... Isn't it amazing? The correction, well, the sort of correction. Now, going out after his death, there were claims of greater involvement by him in a videotape from the year 2000. Now, remember... We said we gave you his birthday on purpose, saying that he died in 2005. Right. Because he made a videotape in the year 2000 stating that he had seen alien corpses and a craft at a base hangar. And he also said that he handled the strange crash debris. So this wasn't quite a deathbed confession because it was five years. He did it before because yeah. he figured, well, I'm getting kind of old. Let yeah. me go ahead and put this out there. You don't know. Really, at the end, when you're cur- coasting up to the curb, you don't know how long you've got. But here is Blanchard. <laughs> this has been fueled by various military officials who have come out to claim that what was recovered was actually an alien aircraft. But it was all largely written off until 2005 with the death of Lieutenant Walter Hort. On his deathbed at the age of 83, Hort revealed a sworn affidavit to be opened and made public domain only after his death. The document made sensational claims that the weather balloon had been a cover-up for not just a small craft, but the small humanoid bodies he saw within. As the base's public relations officer, Hort had drafted both original press releases, and the revelation lent serious clout to claims of alien contact. Now, see, that was the biggest thing there. So that's not Blanchard, obviously, but someone (laughs) telling you that he did make a deathbed confession with an affidavit. Correct. So I was kind of saving that one. That was my little uh, ace in the sleeve there with the affidavit. That was a surprise. Hello. But you know, oh, 
There was a signed affidavit. Sure, yes, sure. he did that. So he stated in that affidavit, and he uh, specifically in his will said, you do not release this until I die. But he signed this thing saying that on the day of the Roswell crash, following the press release he put out in the afternoon, he was taken out to a base hangar by Colonel Blanchard. And when he was there, again, this is all in his sworn statement, and that was released upon oh, so his that's death. that's Howe's statement. I'm right. sorry. I'm so confused. I thought it was Blanchard that wrote it. No, no, no. I okay. got you. So this was Howe's statement that he put out, but didn't want out until after his death. In the sworn affidavit, he said that he saw an egg-shaped craft about 15 feet long. And several small bodies about four feet tall with large heads. He was convinced that the bodies were alien and had come from the crashed spacecraft. He also stated that there had been two major crash sites that he had become aware of the day before. The first large debris field. And now this is crazy because you don't hear a lot about the two crash sites. The first one was about 75 miles northwest of Roswell, according to how it's signed affidavit here. The second was about 40 miles north of the town where the main craft and bodies were found. Now, the north site had just been found by civilians on July 7th. And apparently, now get this, word had already gotten out that had gotten out about the crash in the public. So people knew about it in this town. Well, I'm sure the guy that owned the ranch. Exactly. Yes. Did they ever talk to him? Well, they did, actually. But he also said that he had to lie about his knowledge of the incident his entire life, pretty much, to keep his oath of secrecy. He was sworn to secrecy and kept that all his life until his death when that sworn affidavit came out. Uh. Now, believe it or not, Karen, to answer your question, how it wasn't the only one willing to talk about the famous incident later in life. Yeah. And by the way, there's a, a document that could be seen in the hand of Brigadier General Roger Ramey. Mm-hmm. At the time, he was the commanding officer of the 8th Air Force, and the date of the photograph was established by various records, including those from the uh, photo archives at Bettman, and it had two negatives, but it was dated July 8th, 1947, and it was transmitted over the INS wire service at 11.59 p.m., and the photograph Ramey is holding, he's got a piece of paper slightly turned away from right. the camera. It's a famous picture, yeah. Yeah, but one, some of the words can be read while others seem obscured, and using modern techniques and computers, some of the key phrases have been identified as recently as 2015 and deciphering the truth by any intelligence investigation you know you're looking for an obscure reference but a close friend of Marilyn Monroe was interviewed in the late 1990s and she was answering questions about her knowledge of Marilyn's relationship with the Kennedys and specifically Bobby Kennedy Mm -hmm. and when she stopped her narrative and blurted out of context you know that Marilyn and Bobby told her that the government recovered an alien spaceship there's a, actually a whole story there to that, and I think we we kind of li- lightly touched on it one time. Yeah, that's a wild story about Marilyn Monroe. It involves her. It involves Burl Ives. It involves the Kennedys. It's a crazy story. I think we'll have to do a, a, a completely separate episode on that one day. I like it. Did, but did they ever tr- decipher what it said on the piece of paper? Well, what with they Ramey? it's it's kind of subjective. But what they think it says basically kind of direction. So what it was, it was, you know, we covered this, you know, alien spacecraft and, you know, deny, 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 essentially. Oh, well, here is more on that. Within hours, Ramey's office issued a new press release stating that the material recovered in New Mexico was not a UFO, but in reality, the wreckage of a U.S. Army weather balloon. My dad said, obviously, it was a 
cover-up story was not a weather balloon. He was a little disturbed about that, but uh, he had his own security classification to protect. He could not really go public with, hey, this is not a weather balloon. So he had to keep that to himself. Exactly. All his life. All of them. I mean, they're all sworn to secrecy. But the accounts of the small bodies and all those different things, you know, the four feet tall, you know, gray skin, child, almost childlike in a way as far as their stature, that matches everything we've always heard right. about the recovered bodies, allegedly, because uh, I say allegedly because it's never been 100% proven because it's always been lied about for the past, you know, 75 years or so. And but that's that matches all these descriptions that we've always heard over time. Yeah, and it's in a sworn affidavit. Why would you? Okay, so let me. This is my first hypothetical question here. So what does Howard have to do with Ramey, Brigadier General Roger Ramey? Basically, they were working together. Okay. They were all kind of in that same area as far as the base was concerned in, in Roswell. So, my, but my first question to you, Karen, my first hypothetical I'm going to throw out is. As a veteran, as someone who worked on these important missions like Hout, why would you, at the end of your life, make A, a videotape, and B, sign a sworn affidavit saying not to be released until your death, and in the affidavit is everything we just read to you, why would he do that if it's just BS? That makes no sense. No. Right? No. That's That flies in the face of what a deathbed confession is. It's you get it off your chest. You reveal a secret. Right. That's what it's about. Why would you make your last act on Earth a yes. lie? Yes. Why, why would you do it? You just to, to, to play with people's emotions? Oh, let me put this out there and just confuse people and say, no, like, I mean, I, I, if you want to be a skeptic and say he was just making it up and felt like being a as jokester he, at the end and, of his life, you can he, say that. But as he's taking his last breath, he's like, just kidding. Gotcha. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's just that's just my own thought. So now do we have Pappy Henderson? We do. Now, Pappy Henderson was somebody who's a captain. This is another <laughs> testimony. Remember, we said that Walter Hout wasn't the only person involved with this who decided to kind of spill the beans to the end of his life. Pappy Henderson told was somebody who worked in these bases and worked at these sites um, involving the Roswell crash and was sworn to secrecy his whole life as well. Now, he didn't go to the presses. He didn't give a sworn affidavit oh, or anything no. like that. But... He told his wife everything. He sure did. And here is Pappy, Captain Pappy Henderson's wife. My husband, Oliver Henderson, otherwise known as Pappy in the Air Force, he was entrusted with many of this country's top secrets, and they were safe with him. He never told anything that he wasn't supposed to. Captain Pappy Henderson piloted the plane that took the first pieces of wreckage out of Roswell. And then in 1981, right before he died, he came clean to his wife. My husband told me the bodies were small, smaller than human bodies. The heads were larger and the eyes were rather sunken and uh, a little slanted. Clothing was of material unlike anything he'd seen before. They were strange. They were not not of this earth. Pillow talk with the wife. Aha. Uh-huh. See, to me, that's that means more than anything. Yeah. What he what you tell your your significant other. And yep. he told her everything. Um I, what strikes me there, it's probably the same thing that struck you when you heard it just now. The same damn description yes. as Walter Held. Exactly. And you have guys who were they weren't actually working together. They were in separate parts. They had different jobs, okay? So, I mean, maybe they knew each other in life. I don't know. 
but you had the same descriptions. It's not like they said, hey, uh, Walter Hout, um, I'm Captain Pappy Henderson. I'm going to die in 1981. And here's what I saw. So you say the same thing right, in 2005 no. before you die. No. I mean, come on. Is that the description of a gray? Is that what the gray is? Essentially. Like? Right. And actually, Karen... There's more than one gray. No. There's many descriptions of you many grays. You mean that there's 50 shades of grays? <laughs> We're going to get into the different grays here in a little what? bit. Side note, that was the original name when we were coming up with this podcast. The original name of this podcast was we going to be... we were told that there was no point of reference. That was, <laughs> it was going to be Fifty Shades of Greys. We were like, but we were told by the higher-ups, you probably shouldn't. Uh, that's copyright infringement territory. So. Well, then we thought, well, how about Aliens for Dummies? That didn't go really well. No, and, and then you came up with UAP, which has been a brilliant idea because that's here we are. since the government came out and said, hey, this stuff's real. Right. They call, instead of UFOs, they call them UAPs. Yeah, it's kind of the, the official government name so they don't use the UFO term. And, uh, you know, of course, ours means Unidentified Alien Podcast, so it all works. There's a little backstory. Now, real quick before we get into our next confession here, because this one, I mean, you are going to have to take some some type of like Tylenol, Advil, Motrin, Naproxen. I don't like just... Get ready for what we're about to get into. We're going to give you a headache. <laughs> yes. Uh, but before I get into that, one more quick thing. A personal story, actually. This has been related to us personally by someone mutually that, that we both know very well. And we know it would be very reputable. This person is not going to make up this story. So we can say that with confidence that this person we know who heard it from someone that they knew who is also just equally as reputable... This is the story that I, about Roswell that I want to give to you real quick. So the story that we've been told from someone that gave their own deathbed confession who worked, same type of thing, was in the Air Force, did a bunch of different missions. This person that we know of uh, flew in World War II, Vietnam, Korea. Okay, so this person was in the Air Force for a long time and flew a lot of important missions. And he said toward the end of his life that he was at Roswell. Oh, wow. And when he was at the wreckage, it was a, what he saw, he discovered a big piece of like sheet metal, right? It was part of the wreckage. And he went to go pick it up and he's like, whoa, whoa, what? He was able to pick it up with his finger. Wow. Light as a feather. Light as a feather. Wow. So some sort of weird alloy. Something that we don't know. I'm sure we know now in secret, whatever it's made of. And we probably use it on different weapons or something that we don't even know about. But according to this man who served in the Air Force for decades and fought in the wars and at the end of his life told the person that you and I know that would not lie about these things, told him, hey, I was there at Roswell and uh, this thing that I thought was a giant piece of metal was going to be super heavy. I was able to pick it up with my finger. That's crazy. So take that wow. for what it's worth. Okay. That's interesting. Yes. What about Tom Costello? Okay. He gave another deathbed <laughs> confession. Here we go. Thomas Costello. Ready for this, Karen? I am. Believe it or not, Thomas Costello worked at the Dulce base. Yay. Episode six, we go into it. And it's to this day, it's one of our most listened to and downloaded episodes. So if you haven't heard our Dulce base episode where we go into a lot of the um, testimony from Philip Schneider, who we're going to get into as part of this as well, uh, just to give you a little bit of a background again. Um, Philip Schneider is somebody who worked in his story, worked at Dulce Base, uh, was a government contractor pretty much. He sort of gave a deathbed confession because right after he spoke about it, he got uh, clotheslined with a piano wire. Yeah, he died. 
Yeah. They say he committed suicide. Right, with the piano with him, right. Right. So just a little refresher there. But uh, before we get into that, now, when it comes to Thomas Castello, I'm just going to give you a warning. This is a listener warning. This confession is very controversial. It's disputed by skeptics. But in 2009, he says that at that point that he was the senior security technician at Dulce Base in New Mexico. And in 2009, he decided to tell everything he knew about the base after finding out that he had been diagnosed with terminal cancers, the way the story goes. Now, he says that he had been living in Europe under an assumed name. So when he found that he was going to die, essentially, he came out to one of his close friends about his real identity. Why was he living in Europe under an assumed name? Uh, According to the accounts, basically, he was afraid of being tracked down. He became kind of paranoid. He didn't want to be... um, he was afraid he knew too much, Oof. essentially. The man who knew too much. Exactly. Now, I'll just read real quick. We talk about Philip Schneider just to revisit some things about the Dulce base. If you hadn't heard the previous episode, again, you can go back. What did you say? It was episode six. six. So we did speak about this then. And Dulce base, again, is said to be a jointly operated human and alien underground facility. Right. It's underground. Yes. Let me say that again. It's said to be a jointly operated human and alien underground facility. In New Mexico. Right. Under the Archuleta Mesa, Mesa, uh, which is basically between Colorado and the Mexico border there. Um, Now, the legends has been told for years. This is nothing new to the Native American Indian tribes who live in that area. And they should know. Right. They've talked about for generations about, you know, human-like beings who live underground, that have come out of caves. It's been passed down from generation to generation. So to them, this is kind of common knowledge. Now, it was, again, the subject of one of our previous episodes with Philip Schneider. He was the former government engineer who said that he got into (laughs) an underground battle. Yeah, they they blew his fingers off with a laser. They sure did. And in the video that we posted on that blog, I believe, actually, on 850WFTL.com, um, we either have the video, it's been so long, it's 30 episodes ago. He froze the video, ago. he shows his hand missing like he, the, t- the two middle fingers. Yes, that's right. We do have that picture. Yes, yes, we do. So if you go on 850WFTL.com, not only will you be able to find all the visuals from this episode, which we're about to tell you what you're going to find on the blog page for this episode 36, but if you go back to episode 6, you'll see Philip Schneider's missing fingers. Photographic evidence. My gosh. A battle with aliens. So, by the way, he... Um, he told the story at a conference back in 1997. That's where we got a lot of the information from. And we have the audio of it. We do, a lot of it. Yep. Um, it was a very long interview. We kind of cut it down for the bullet points if you go back and listen. But shortly after that conference, he was found dead in his yep. apartment building, which we talked about in that episode. All that being said, it's first important to describe the setting that Castello described as the setup for the base. Now, we do have the picture, okay? Of this base, and I'm going to reference and he- reference the picture here, just so you kind of get. It's a photograph. It is, yeah. It's it's um of an alien. Oh no no no, not yet. Oh no no, we can't reveal the alien yet. We're going to hold that one back Sorry. for a minute. No no, it's okay. The first thing you're going to see is the actual. Um, I see a graphic representation of Castello's description of how the base worked. So we have the picture up. You can always go look at it 850wftl.com. But I'm going to describe it to you now. Um, it's the first level. Okay, so you have the ground level. Is the way that he described this. You have the mountains. Basically, you know, the, the earth where everybody's walking. All the, you know, everybody's living. Then you have the base underground. The first level is uh, security and communications. 
The second level is human staff housing, okay, where really? basically Castello lived would be on that second level. Okay. The third level, executives and, and labs, okay. Now the fourth level, you have, this is where things start to get interesting, mind control experiments. Whoa. The fifth level, alien housing, where the uh, aliens live. So it's segregated. It is. Alien... Very much so, by the way. We don't mean that like in a smart aleck way. Like they were very strict, according to Castello's story that we're going to get into here, about keeping the aliens and the humans away from each other. No monkey business between you two. No, I mean they worked together, okay, when they were supposed to. But they didn't want them mating. Um. Well, <laughs> wait for that one. But they, the aliens were very protective about their territory. Oh, I'm sure. So basically, they didn't want to be around humans unless they had to. Who took my sandwich out of the refrigerator? It has to be one of those humans. We've all been there. Level six, there's seven levels. Level six, genetic experiments. And level seven was cryogenic storage. What they had in the cryogenic storage, I'm not oh, sure. wow, that's so cool. Now, they also had underground shuttles. That went through, and that was about six levels underground. So we're gonna we're gonna get into all these things here as we go through Castello's cool story. But just to give you kind of a picture in your and mind, this is the Dulce base. Yes. So again, when you go to eight fifty wftlcom and you search for the UAP podcast, you'll see our blog, and you can look at this as we talk about it. So with all that information in mind, okay, I know it was a long setup, but oh, good. I felt it was important to do that. We go over what did some of these confessions sound like? Okay, now. Please, it's going to be tough to listen to. Yeah, it's a computerized voice. So we're going to do our best here because we don't have the actual recording. The actual recordings of Castello have been lost for whatever reason. So we only have a transcript, and the transcript was transcribed basically using a robotic voice. So We'll try to help you with we're, it. We're going to try to help you out with it. I'm going to read some of the questions as well, and you'll hear some of these answers. So the first question that was asked, okay, when was the human-occupied level, the upper levels that we talked about, of the base constructed? All right, here we go. I heard Dulles was started in 1937 to 38 by the Army engineers, enlarged over the years. Most recent work was completed in 1965-66 to connect tunnels to the Arizona base, site of one of the older underground facilities. The Four Corners base is called Paracat. Most of the Native American Indians living in that area are aware of that base, and could tell us about the underground life forms, that frequently are spotted near those communities, Bigfoot, etc. <laughs> Bigfoot! Bigfoot. I mean, that's what he says. What? Now, again. This is crazy. I'm telling you, this is what I was trying to warn you about 20 minutes ago, okay? Wow. <laughs> Some people don't buy into this, but that's what we're just giving you the information. That's all we ever do here is we give you the information, yeah. you make we're up your mind. We're not making up what they made up. <laughs> right. I'm just telling you. <laughs> or maybe they didn't. This is this is Thomas Castello. He says he worked at Dulce Base. He was dying, and this is the stuff that he wrote down. Okay, and we're just giving you the information that he gave. And once again, our episodes continue to intertwine. Oh, they sure do. And pick up the same thread. Everything is related. It's unbelievable. I mean, it we is. never planned it that way. No. Question two: What type of tools? And I, this was I found this question very interesting for a specific reason, which we'll get to after the robot answer. What type of tools were used to construct the upper installations? All right, here we go. By what means was the upper installations constructed? Are you familiar with the alleged developments made by the RAND Corporation of a highly efficient bore or mole machine capable of melting rock? 
using nuclear-powered wolf from graphite-tipped drill cones. According to several senior maintenance workers, part of it was blasted by nuclear devices in the 60s. There are sections, like the shuttle tunnels, that were formed by an advanced tunneling machine that leaves the tunnel walls smooth. Mm -hmm. The finished walls in those tubes resemble polished black glass. Okay, so the reason why I found that so interesting... We've talked about melting rocks. We sure have, and it was actually the same exact story that Philip Schneider described right. when he was working with those tools. Right. He was the guy that was using those things to go and, and burrow through the, the ground. And Tom Costello knows about it, too, so that's really interesting. Hello? I mean, look at that connection. Yeah. So again, we cover a lot of that in episode six when we originally talked about Dulce Base as, as a whole and just turns out there was a deathbed confession about it. So here we are. Oh my God. Question three. Are there other sites tied into the so-called shuttle network that we keep hearing about? And if so, where are the entrances? Now, real quick, Karen, before we play this answer, okay, let me explain this, this shuttle network that we keep hearing about because you might think about well, what, what shuttle network? What is this like a monorail at Disney? So, Castello had described a network of tunnels that could be used to transport workers from place to place. So, I, I think what you're going to hear here might actually shock you when his answer comes to just how extensive yeah. this network of tunnels supposedly is. Now, bear with us here because this is a very detailed answer. So, pay close attention here for a couple minutes. It's, it's actually, worth it. I cut it down. Did you? Yeah. All right. So, so here's the, you'll get some of the main information. Here's the gist of it. Other complex portals are found on military bases. New Mexico and Arizona have the largest amounts of entrances followed by California, Montana, Idaho, Colorado, Pennsylvania, Kansas, Arkansas, and Missouri. Of all the states, Florida and North Dakota have the least amount of entrances. Least Wyoming amount. has a road that opens directly into the subterranean freeway. That road is no longer in use but could be reactivated if they decide to do so, with minimal cost. Mm. It's located near Brooks Lake. Oh, whoa, whoa. That's, yeah, and I just want, Florida has the least amount. How about that? Yeah, I thought that was interesting. So what he describes Colorado, here. Colorado, what did he say? Colorado has, yeah, right. So California, he did mention that, which is interesting because we talked about alien hotspots in a previous episode, and California has the most UFO sightings in the country. Oh, and there's underwater bases Correct. in California. Right. That, underwater, you know, not subterranean. Right. So we've talked about those things before. And so I found that kind of, again, corroborating evidence here on different things that we've talked about on a different subject. So it kind of all just, it comes together. So what? now, you might be wondering. Brooks Lake. Where the heck is Brooks Lake? If he's talking about a tunnel that goes directly out. That's weird. My mother's maiden name is Brooks. Oh, is that right? Yep. Hey, look at that connection. Now, this took me down a rabbit hole here, okay? Because oh I ended up on a website called jacksonhole.net. Oh, Lord. Okay? <laughs> so according to jacksonhole.net... Brooks Lake is in Wyoming, ah. which explains the Jackson Hole. It's located between Moran and Dubois, Wyoming. Brooks Lake is a remote area. And from Jackson, here's the directions. If you want to go to Brooks Lake, write okay. this down. From Jackson, drive north on US 89, US 191 toward Yellowstone. It's not like a GPS. Mm -hmm. At the Moran Junction, continue east toward Tagwoti and Dubois. You'll see signs for Brooks Lake Lodge about 25 miles from Moran. That's remote. Yeah. The lodge and the campground and trails are located right at the lake. So 
It's a big thing for people to go to in the summer. I mean, I'm sure it's beautiful. I think that's beautiful. where they filmed the Jason horror movies. Is that right? Was it Jason? No, I'm just kidding. Oh, okay. I was going to say, maybe. Which, was that, was that Crystal Lake? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> which one of the the weird killers was that? Yeah, the, no, that was, that was uh, Jason? yeah, Crystal Lake. Yeah, Friday the 13th. So, I mean, maybe you want to go on a little summer trip here. Uh, as we approach summer or spring trip, you can go to Brooks Lake in Wyoming and try to find the underground tunnel opening to Very go into cool. uh, Dulce Base if yeah. you'd like to do that. Now, enough of the robot voice. Okay. By the way, we do have underground tunnels in Florida. And if you thought we didn't, we people go spelunking up in the northern part. That's where you were. You were up in caves up there. I was just there. Did you see any alien life? I didn't, but it was interesting. I'd never been in a cave before. And we went, not to get into the whole my, my, the spring break family vacation, but it, it connects to it here. We were up in the panhandle of Florida. There's a small town there called Mariana. And they have, it's actually a state park, um, commissioned state park uh, from the from the government. And it's the Florida Caverns. So it's something that's, you know, the Indians used, you know, that would lived in Florida. A lot of places in Florida, if you're not familiar with Florida, are named after Indians. Tallahassee, oh, the Okeechobee. Seminoles are the... Seminole the, Indians. Have never I mean, been conquered. They're exactly. the only Indian tribe that's never been conquered. That's right. And I saw the unconquered statue, actually, in front of the Florida State Stadium. <gasps> oh, my God. That's Very so cool. cool. But so, I mean, we do have a lot of underground things. It's not like there weren't things underground or currently still underground. It was just in one. That's so interesting. So, again... All right, so no more robot voice, but we do have <laughs> some of the uh, um, questions and answers here that we can read ourselves from Castello ourselves. So if you imagine that any of this is true, you think about an entire world right under our feet. I mean, think about that. When you look at the graphic on the website, on 850WFTL.com, on search UAP for the, under the podcast, you can see episode 36 right there, and you look at this graphic that Castello kind of made and described, you think about this entire underground network, if you're if we're talking about underground tunnels and roads, infrastructure. Yes. Under the ground that he's describing. If you think it's, it's a, BS, it, then fine. But it's supposed to be better than what we have on top Yes. Here <laughs> up more on advanced. The crust of the earth. And again this much is, more advanced. This is what he described. If you don't believe it, fine, but this is his account. So it's just wild to think about. You might have this complete other world with roadways underground <laughs> leading back and forth to these bases. Crazy. It now is. like we said, there's a lot of ways that they can go to the underground facility. The most common way to be shuttled uh, was by using these these underground shuttle systems. Now, you simply drive to a designated building in the city that you're going to work, you know, like if you were going to a normal 9-to-5 job. Now, once inside, you descend below the building via a subtle access way, and then you would board the shuttle. This is how he described basically how it worked, okay? Now, this would take you straight into the base. Other ways to access the base were through farms okay. and local areas, and by, they did that by uh, basically paying off the farmers. Oh, really? And government staff would take over the farms. Ah. Now, then the farms were modified to allow access to the base. Now, the farms are still run as farms to basically cover up any suspicious activity. Any visitors or other personal or, or personally escorted to the bases or they were asked to meet base commanders at certain locations and they were kind of ride like discreet vehicles, like old beat up four by four trucks. I wonder if the crop circles that show up at some farms have anything to do with the possible base underneath. Maybe. Correlating. I mean, it could all connect. Corresponding to Right. It. Now, people who are looking for doors in the sides of mountains and grills in the ground spewing out steam. No. That doesn't happen. So if you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, guys. It's like a button you push and the rock moves. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Pull a book out. Yeah. <laughs> 
You'd be thinking, well, guys, you know, no, we would know about this because we would have signs of it from... No, not necessarily. No. Because according to Castello, all the power at the base is created using an advanced system originally created by German scientists following World War II. Hello. Oh, hello. We just talked the about bell. this in the Spear of Destiny. Nazi bell. All of these things that were created by the Nazi yeah, scientists. Right. The system uses a large hexagonal circuits that contain magnets and coils that generate energy from what is essentially nothing. Which, mm-hmm. by the way, Karen... We talked about that thing, too. We talked about things like that. And this is something that Tesla was said to have right. come up with as well. And a lot of his research was stolen after his death, and it was buried because he was going to put the power companies out of out of business. Yeah, because then all electricity would have been free for everyone, and we can't have that. That's the free energy we always but, hear about. Someone was talking about that box. Remember the magnetic energy box? Which episode was that? I can't even remember. Man, that all just kind of blends together now. But now, now, before all that, they say that the power was generated by water from the local area. Okay. Okay. Now, it should be noted that many people lived in the facility and didn't need to leave for any reason. Okay. So based, they've got like stores and stuff down there. Yeah, of course. You know, they had a Walgreens and a, and a Publix. So part of the contract <laughs> was that if you ha- you had to be comfortable was basically living there. Ugh. Because that would eliminate traffic, right? If it's For Area 51, we know that's real now. The government finally admitted that Area 51 is real base. And the... People who work there have to go in and out on airplane. They don't drive up to the base. They have an airplane that flies back and forth from the you know, airport near Vegas. Now, the way to avoid that for Dulce Base is you live there. So you weren't going back and forth. You're not commuting. So now how about some more questions? Okay, okay good. Here we go. Some questions that were asked of Castello and the answers that he gave. About aliens. About aliens. And we found these to be particular. Now, there are many questions. I was going to tell you up front that we did not use we kind of cherry well, These are the most interesting ones. And then our next episode for next week is going to kind of piggyback yeah. on this. So one of the questions that was asked of Castella, what about social skills? Are they socially nude? Do they have like human attributes? Do they, do they have they, an EQ, IQ? Do they, you know, do they act in a civilized manner? Now, according, or do they eat with their mouth open? I don't know. I mean, these are things we never really thought about before, right? When it comes to aliens. No. According to Castello, living and working with aliens on a daily basis at first was extremely strange and surreal for him. He mentioned that he never got used to walking around the base and just bumping into an alien. He admitted that it was actually pretty scary and he had nightmares almost every really? night. He was terrified. He says communication with the greys was easy. Was it telepathic? It was. Okay. But he said there's no feeling in their words. They have no emotion. He said basically what people would classify as greys would never be able to fit into society, which might explain why they don't just come out and say, hey, we're real. Because they're not like us, according to his account. They're just very bland. They're very stale. They're, they're, They're focused. They don't joke around. They're not sarcastic. They're not, you know chipper or happy or upset or angry they're just that's sort of what's happening with us you can't have any more humor anymore and we're all just melding into one sex and you know we're we're heading in that direction cancel culture with aliens no but i'm, I'm <laughs> yeah is that but maybe, maybe the they got canceled too many times men are becoming women women are coming men and you know you can't make jokes and or you'll be canceled, and so we're becoming aliens. <laughs> Maybe we are aliens. No, tell me, do aliens crossbreed with humans? Now, yeah, that was another question, do right? They have mixed children at the base, right? So the answer that they gave was, 
or I should say the, the answer that Castello gave to the transcriber, he says they did not create hybrids or they didn't try to as well. Although, and this uh, was not surprising, humans at the base did try to create hybrids. Of course they did. <laughs> as far as uh, Thomas knew, this, the line of experimentation was a failure. Mm. He didn't see any human-alien hybrids during his time there, according to his account. But he did, however, see alien-animal hybrids, but he didn't specify really? what they were like. Oh, that's so interesting. So it makes you wonder, huh? Yeah. yeah. So uh, what about other types of aliens at the base? I mean, were they all the mm-hmm. same? Okay. So the way that he described this was there were four types of what you would classify as grays. Okay. Now, there were other descriptions just for information we didn't really go deep into this because it got a little confusing just to be upfront with you um he started talking about reptilians that lived down there he started talking about which phil snyder or he talked about he, too he did that's right so those two accounts matched he talked about um a different type of reptilian called the draco so there's there's some confusing things that we decided to leave out on purpose because we didn't want it to be too convoluted, but we did leave in his description here of the gray. So you can look into that part, I guess, on your own if you want to, but he did mention those things, just so you know. Um, uh, the grays are the ones that we really, when you say alien, that's the one you think of. Right. Like the almond-shaped dark eyes that are short and skinny, spindly arms and legs, the, big head. The ones that they described in Roswell. Right. Essentially, but so he says there's four types, okay. which I never knew. Me either. The first type, three feet tall, three to four feet tall, like we described in Roswell, dark gray, extremely slight with larger than average heads. Okay. Classic description of a gray, right? Short, big head. Type two, six feet tall. Oh. be basketball players. They had muscular frame, light brown color, more visual personality. Huh. Than the other species of so grays. So more human-y. Right. This was fascinating to yeah. me when I heard these Because they do say some grays walk among us, and that would be the one, the Could number be. two. And they, they, we talk about the Nordics all the time. Yeah. It looked like, you know, people from Sweden. So, I mean, they, they say they kind of try to blend in. The reptilians try to blend uh, in with number disguises. Number three Cooper, Anderson Cooper. Oh, well, here we go. <laughs> Six feet tall, this gray type. Slight frame, long features. Pure white skin, which we're carrying against the Anderson Cooper reference from, with lots of boil wart type Ooh. marks on their body. Ooh. Not saying the Anderson Cooper has boils oh, on I don't them. know anything no. about that. Never heard of that before, right? Oh, no, uh-uh. Disgusting. Yeah. I don't want to see those aliens. I need to see a dermatologist, I Not think. Not good. That. No. But this, these are all descriptions that we had never heard before, so we wanted to relate it to you, how Castello described these in his deathbed confession. And the number four Number type? four. Very tall. Oh. Over seven feet tall. Very nice. Very, very skinny. Okay. Difficult to comprehend their look. Dark gray, almost black Ooh, in nature. Scary. Do they eat? Well, before I get give you that answer, the one that we just described there, we have a picture of it. Oh my God. The dark the dark gray one? Yes. Okay. So the, the picture. Seven footer is. Do they participate in March Madness or? <laughs> they might be playing on Purdue. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's these, if they're that tall, they might be playing basketball. Now, the picture you're going to see on our blog page on 850wftl.com. Again, we just we just give you the information. You decide for yourself. It's if you a think photograph. It's, it's a photograph that's supposedly Castello took and snuck out. Maybe that's why he was living under an assumed name in Europe because he had all this evidence that he was saving of Dulce Base. We have the photograph. 
that he allegedly took and saved and was put out on the internet after his death, like he wanted to be, um, of this alien. We have it on the blog. You can take a look. It's very freaky. It is very freaky. Um, so you'll see that there on the episode 36 blog on 850WFTL.com. You search for UAP in the podcast section. All right, so your question, Karen? Do they eat? Well, it's funny you ask that because there's. let's talk about what we would consider to be human behavior, okay? Okay. Now, when Thomas's description, he was not aware of any kind of cleaning procedures, let alone the eating portion. So they don't take baths or anything. That's what he says. I mean, he well, never really saw they don't really, really have genitalia them. or anything. I mean, they're just kind of like... That was, right, according to his descriptions, he didn't really go into the living quarters a lot. Oh. But so they were only really seen by a handful of human staff at the facility as far as the living quarters go. They never ordered toilet paper? No, apparently not. And as far as the eating portion goes, he said they ate a, um, how do you describe it? Almost like a liquid. It was a foul smelling liquid. Oh, Lord. And it was like, I guess, a special mix of nutrients that they needed. But they would only need it like every once every week. So it's not like us where you know three square meals a day and things like that. You need the protein, you need your your carbs and you know your iron, vitamins. Apparently, they just would eat this liquid once a week and it stunk, according to his description. Very huh. strange. And they didn't find need for bathing. I guess their chemistry is different than ours, according to Castello. Hmm. Other questions? You have how about some of these other questions? Very were, weird stuff. Were they able to reproduce on Earth? Here, did they have babies? Well, were there female? I mean, you never see genitalia. How do you know if it's a female or a male? Did they have children at the base? Were they born on the planet? The way that Costello described that answer was that uh, they could reproduce here, although it was a very artificial process. It's oh. not like the the mating process that we go through as humans. Basically, he described it as as cloning. Essentially, is what they did. So it was more like a test tube situation. I feel like we as humans are heading in that direction with the food. We're more vegan, less eating animal products. Maybe more plant-based stuff. Eventually, moving into some sort of a liquid that we eat once a week. You know. Yeah. And then we have more and more people who are having babies with um, the CRISPR editing of the genes. True. And you've got uh, you can select the the embryos and then fertilize the embryos and then you can implant them and you yeah. can decide if you want a boy or a girl. It's, it's moving in the same direction. And you know, It's an interesting point because the way that he described it was they were neither male nor female. Right. So he said once a clone was produced, they instantly looked adult. Like he came out as Boom. adult. Almost like, remember the movie The Sixth Day with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yes. Kind of in that way. Huh. I mean, you were, you were not born a baby as a clone it's just boom you're there but you're you're like a baby so they would need to go through rigorous mental development similar to what a child needs once that clone was born so to speak and that's essentially how they reproduced according to castello hmm. um, but no foreplay huh no no yeah. nothing like that no need for it because they don't have any emotions Got according it, to his right. descriptions Thanks. nothing so i mean this is the, you know, Was it no, good for you? The, yeah, eh. You didn't hear an alien ask that. No. No personalities. Very do they get depressed? Do they cry? No. Uh, According to his Do they sleep? So, very interesting question. He said they rest. Oh, they rest. But it wouldn't be described or classified as sleeping. It was it's more like being... No, he said it was more like being put into like a like a trance, like a stasis form. Interesting. But he said they could work for a week solid without 
resting at all. Just wow. go, go, go. Gosh, that's like you. Right. Yeah, I feel that way sometimes. But again, no emotions. He talked about they, they just no, just completely emotionless. He said, and it was strange to see a living creature with no expression day to day, no emotion and no water cooler talk. You could, Hey, Joe, oh, did you see don't. that game last night? They don't you gossip know? or anything? Nothing. Nah, did you hear about <laughs> Nothing. I, I mean, you know, they weren't talking about politics. They weren't talking about, you know, the holidays coming up or whatever. Or what are you going to do on vacation? It was just, they were emotionless, is the way he described this. He said the, the, the people who worked there were conditioned to deal with this. You know, you had to realize, hey, this isn't uh, a human that I'm working with. It's well, very different species, very different being, very different mindset. What is their agenda? Well, I think that's one of the biggest questions, right? Now, the way that he described it was... They're all about learning how to better their civilization. The way they go about that is through learning process that would cause concerns such as alien abduction, human experimentation. Making the universe great again. <laughs> I don't know if that's their agenda, but the way they go about... bettering their civilization. That's what they want to do. The way they go about some tasks would be considered to us to be threatening like, you know, human abduction and things like that. Some of the different God. stories that we've talked about in past episodes about abductions and all these different things, missing time and, you know, experimenting in ways that uh, we would find immoral. So, wild, wild stuff. It is. Do with it what you will. The mind reels. Oh, my goodness. To quote Audrey Hepburn from Breakfast at Tiffany's. I know that was a little bit longer than no, one of our normal episodes, stuff. but we went really in-depth here with these confessions and descriptions from people who were in the know. So do with that information as you will. It's mind-bending to me. I am. Uh, I need a nap. I do, too. <laughs> <laughs> I do, too. Next week, we're going to talk about, because you guys really like the episode about different types of aliens. Yeah, so it's funny because, you know, we, we, we've talked about a lot here in the history of the podcast, and one of the episodes was about alien species and their differences. So when I was kind of putting together this episode with you, Karen, we, we started thinking, boy, it would be interesting to kind of go into, because our mind kind of wanders as we prepare these things. So we thought, you know what? What about where these things come from, right? Where is it? Are they humans from the future? Because yeah. we talk about how we go. You know, we do a lot of these uh, test tube, you know, babies sometimes now ourselves. So is that some way we're going? Are these? Are we learning from aliens? Are we all related? So when we right. die, then we our spirit goes somewhere else, and we embody an alien form. Are we all somehow one? It's it's in the universe. You thought this was mind bending. I know. Wait until next week. We're, <laughs> we're going to go through theories about aliens and their origins. Because I will tell you, in my past life regression with Dr. Brian Weiss, he says once you get it on this earth and you mm -hmm. understand, you live your life in a, such a way where you do no harm and and you're just about love and you don't get reincarnated and come back like a rudimentary serial killer that soul's coming back interesting but people who have transcended that and become you know see the light basically mm. go become a master and they're like the eyes in the sky so i'm wondering if those masters are the ones that are then the aliens that you know what i mean interesting I, he seems to think we're all interconnected energy it's all energy well that's... we are all energy matter is energy 
that's what we we kind of covered in the Edgar Casey episodes as right, well. Right. So I would say if you want to do some homework before listening to next week uh, next week's episode, you can listen to Edgar Casey part one and yeah. two. Because yeah. it's going to be along those lines. And uh, we're going to answer all these questions. We'll try. And go in, we're going deep next week in episode 37 about alien origins and all the possibilities of all these things. It's all going to come together, we're gonna go we promise. go on Ancestry.com and start... <laughs> Start doing an alien family tree. It's going to get a little wild. So hopefully you enjoyed this one. Hopefully we made you think a little bit about could these confessions, are there validity to all these things? Of course it's a deathbed confession. Yeah. Why else make it? And all these things about how different the aliens are to humans and different, no personality just was fascinating to me. So we'll do it all again next week on episode 37 when we talk about wow. aliens and possible origins. Of course, you can always follow us on uh, Twitter at UAPodcast850 for all the latest updates. And you can, of course, download and listen to all previous episodes on Apple and Spotify or 850WFTL.com where the show lives. And make sure to rate us with five extraterrestrial stars as well. We'll talk to you again next week. Karen Curtis there. Stephen Diener here. Have a good one. Thank you.